4 and verse 14 uh, through chapter 5 and verse 10 is our text this morning. Hebrews 4 verse 14 through chapter 5 and verse 10. Uh, what we're going to see in this passage today is what John Calvin refers to as a transition from being taught about Jesus' apostleship to being taught about his priesthood. Now, what he meant by that um, is that to this point, primarily, the author has been focusing upon Jesus' message. Now, of course, we have seen reference to his priesthood, absolutely, but the, the thrust has been toward the message of Christ. And, of course, the word apostle simply means one sent to bring a message. Um, and so now we could say what we're doing is pressing further into the content of that message, if you will, uh, part of which is the fact that Jesus is himself our mediator, um, our sacrifice, our perfect sacrifice, our great high priest who secures our forgiveness before God and our restoration to him. Um, so with these things in mind, I invite you to look there at verse 14 of chapter 4 as we take up and read this morning. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so grateful to have your word before us, opened, read, and now to be expounded. Um, grant us all to have the right posture of heart to receive your word today. And I pray, Lord, grant me to proclaim this word with clarity and the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. And may it accomplish all that you intend this day and every day for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've already said, we're transitioning into looking at the priesthood of Christ, which carries with it um, 
an entire wealth of reference to Old Testament realities, and specifically the Old Testament law and the priestly system that was instituted within that law in the Old Testament, specifically in the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, this Old Testament teaching provides the entire basis, really, for understanding the passage that is before us today. And as you may know, um, there are two kinds of priesthood in the Old Testament that are given special uh, theological significance, you may say. The one that probably immediately comes to mind is the Aaronic, named after Moses' brother Aaron. Uh, the Aaronic priesthood, also called the Levitical priesthood, because that priesthood was relegated to the tribe of Levi. Um, that's the first one. The second would be what's mentioned here as well, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, some of you are quite familiar with both of these, most likely. Other of you, maybe if not, um, but that's okay if not. Uh, so that we're on the same page, we want to briefly try to summarize these two priesthoods to gain a, a better understanding that will aid us in interpreting our passage today. And we're actually going to start with Melchizedek first, because he comes first in the Old Testament. Uh, this character that's referred to, uh, we see only in Genesis 14, and even there, he's quite the mysterious figure. Uh, there's lots of speculation surrounding this Melchizedek, and he comes into the picture before Israel, at least in a proper sense, was even a thing. Uh, this was before the 12 tribes, before the multiplication in Egypt, before any of that. At this point in Genesis 14, when we see him, it's only Abraham. And God had called Abraham out of the land of Ur. He had made the promise to him to make of him a great nation, to make him the father of many nations, to bless the nations of the world through him. That promise had went forth. Abraham had went forth in faith. And that brings us then to Genesis 14, where Abraham is awaiting the fulfillment of that promise. Well, in one event, there coming upon Genesis 14, Abraham ends up battling some kings that had kidnapped his nephew Lot. Kind of a strange series of events that happened there. But Abraham came away victorious. He took a bunch of plunder with his men uh, that had fought these kings uh, came away with the victory. And we read in the text that as he's returning from this victory, this priest, Melchizedek, comes out to meet Abraham. And this Melchizedek, he puts a blessing upon Abraham. He comes to him with bread and wine. And we're told that this priest that offers a blessing, he's called the King of Salem. And he's also called a priest of God Most High. And so in this meeting, as we said, he blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth of all of the spoils from that victory of defeating those kings. Now, in that setting, that's all we're told. And there's many things we could pull out of that, but nevertheless, it's kind of a mysterious ordeal. But what we do know is that Melchizedek was a priest of God, meaning he was a mediator between God and man. And Abraham, out of reverence, out of a showing of his faith, he brought to Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe of his spoils as an offering to God. Now, our further understanding of this Melchizedek character actually comes from 
the book before us today, that is the book of Hebrews. And what is made abundantly clear for us here is that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. That is one who is an example of something that is to come later. He establishes the basis uh, that is to be fulfilled. And the key realities of the Melchizedek priesthood, if you will, is that it is an eternal priesthood without beginning nor end, and it also pertains to an eternal kingdom. For Melchizedek himself was a king, king of Salem, and a priest of God Most High. And the point of this Melchizedek character was to introduce the people of God to the idea that God can appoint an eternal mediator between himself and his people in a priesthood that does not end. Now, we have much more we need to say on that, and we will, but just keep that in mind for now. Now, let's move on <coughs> Excuse me, to the other priesthood, the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. This one, as you well know, is explained in much greater detail. This one is the basis of all other priestly references in the Scriptures. Uh, it was instituted by God in Exodus 28 and 29, but it's further described in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy. But the basic idea of this priesthood was that because of sin, because of man's failure to live up to the righteous law of God, man was in need of atonement. But because of that very same sin, man was unable to bring atonement for himself, to make satisfaction for his sins before God, and therefore he was unable to have unhindered access to God. That's where the priesthood came in. God instituted and gave the priesthood so that his people would have um, someone to represent them, to offer sacrifice on their behalf, to make atonement for them, their sins, to mediate between them and himself. He appointed that priesthood to provide for this need. And so with that very broad, very quick overview, there's two main things that we need to have in mind for now as we approach this text. And first is this, that God appoints the priesthood for the sake of his people. Right? God doesn't need the priesthood. We need the priesthood. God gives that as a gift. And secondly, there are these two types of priesthood. There is a temporary one, and there is an eternal one. The Levitical priesthood is the example of a temporary priesthood because everyone who serves in it dies and must be replaced. But Melchizedek is the example of an eternal one because he continues forever in that estate. So with all of this in mind as the background, both for the hearers there, the original audience of Hebrews, and even for us, the first point the author makes is that the priesthood of Christ warrants our confidence. All right, now this goes hand in hand with the continual calls that he has made to faithful obedience and perseverance in the faith. Because for the most part, nobody perseveres in something that they have no confidence in. Right? Why would you? If you have no confidence in something, you're probably not going to stick with it. You're probably going to look for something better. That's, in reality, common sense. It's a way of preserving ourselves. But this author, the pastor, 
He wants this flock to know that they have every reason for confidence in Christ. They have every reason not to look for something better because there's nothing better to be found. He is the greatest of all things that we can conceive. And therefore, we are to look to Him in confidence for perseverance because, and here's the foundational principle, because He is our great high priest. Now, we see this point brought out in those first few verses, kind of bookended with these two phrases. First, let us hold fast our confession, there in verse 14. And then in verse 16, let us with confidence draw near. So hold fast with confidence. Hold fast with confidence. Why? Well, a couple of reasons are offered to us. First, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's not said of any priest before. Never is language like that used of any other type of priesthood. What this is getting at is that Jesus himself has entered the very presence of God. And if you go back and you read in the Levitical system, for example, there was a provision where once a year on what is called the Day of Atonement, the high priest, that is, there was one high priest in all of Israel, selected from among the group of the Levites who were all serving in the priestly office. And this high priest, once a year, through um, cleansing, through ritual, ceremonial, sacrifice, and atoning for his own sins, was able to go into the Holy of Holies, beyond the veil, uh, to offer the yearly sacrifice of atonement for the people of Israel. Now, you see then, that being offered once a year, it was quite the significant deal. But the reality is, the temple there in Israel, or the tabernacle in that time of, of the Exodus, that was a place where God manifested His presence to dwell. But we know what? That God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And we also know from later in this book that that earthly tabernacle was only a copy and a shadow of the true tabernacle in heaven. And so even for the high priest to enter into the Holy of Holies was not for him to enter into the most unhindered uh, presence of God. It was still typifying those things that were a reality or are reality in heaven. And yet our text says that Jesus Christ is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And do you remember in verse chapter 1, where is Jesus, Jesus seated right now? at the right hand of the Father on high. And so in the first place, we can hold fast our confession and with confidence draw near because Jesus is into the presence of God. And because He is our high priest, identified with us, that means He brings us into the unhindered presence of God. Which goes then to the second reason why we can hold fast and with confidence draw near, and that's because he knows us experientially. See there where it tells us in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, one of the realities about a priest that we're going to dive further into in a moment is he had to be able to represent 
the people of God. He had to be like them. And the point that the author wants to make here is that Jesus was like us through his incarnation. The only way in which he was not like us is that he did not have sin. He never once committed any sin, but that is not to say that he was not truly tempted. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without that sin. And so thus, whenever he enters into the unhindered presence of God, he goes before us to God's throne. He is able to go with the experience, with the knowledge, with the true understanding by experience of what it is like to share in humanity's weakness, which gives us confidence then that he can represent us rightly before God. Now, as an example, again, nobody likes uncertainty. In all of our lives, we're always looking for certainty. We're, we're looking to be sure of the things that we believe, and especially of things that are in the future. We want to be able to depend upon them because we like to know. Now, some deal with uncertainty better than others, but we would all rather be sure than rather be uncertain. So think about something like salvation. How much more is that something that we want to be certain about? We don't want to think, well, I think I'm saved. And, and that's the sad reality of so many false theologies are out there, is that the best that they can offer is, well, I think I'm saved. I think I'm good enough. I think I've done enough. But any theology that always looks to, only looks to itself, that's the best it can do is, I think. It can offer no assurance whatsoever, but the very scriptures are very clear that in the Christ we can have confidence and assurance to go before the throne of grace. Because in Christ, He gives us a perfect certainty that what we need, that intercession, that sacrifice, it has been offered, it is sure, it is complete. Now, Speaking, though, of this confession, there's another side to it as well. There's also those who don't give much thought to assurance. That is, there's those who don't give much thought to the content of their confession and what it really means. And we see that a profession of faith without confidence is dead religion, just like James points out. It's meaningless words. That which we confess has substance to it. And that's what the author is getting at here let us hold fast that confession and let us with confidence draw near. That is, there is a truth which we believe. We believe the content of what we say. We believe that there is substance to Christ as our Savior, Christ as our great high priest, that it means something for us. Namely, that it brings us certainty. Now, I do want to briefly just mention a word on what it means where it says there that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We've already said a, a bit about this, but that word sympathize it can sometimes be misunderstood in our English. When we think of sympathy, we don't necessarily think of experience. You know, I can have sympathy for somebody without having gone through what they're going through. You know, for example, um, Maybe somebody suffers great loss, but I myself have not suffered a great loss. I can still be sad for them. I can still 
to some degree, share in their sorrows and be there for them and, and offer true comfort. But the fact remains that I've not experienced that, so I don't really know what they're going through, at least not experientially. Well, the Greek word behind sympathize here encompasses experience. It's not merely uh, thinking or, or conceiving of how a person feels, but it's actually knowing by experience that Jesus by experience can sympathize with us because he himself has been subject, subjected to the same weaknesses by being born in the flesh of the Virgin Mary and living as we have yet without sin. Now, one of the greatest difficulties that we face apart from the overall draw of sin is an apprehensiveness toward the majesty of Christ. Let me tell you what I mean by that. That's that reality of once you come to recognize your sin, and let's say once you even come to true saving knowledge of Christ, there's sometimes, because of that knowledge, because of understanding what the Scripture has to say, an apprehensiveness towards Christ because we see how majestic He is. We see how holy he is, how other he is, and so there seems to be this great divide between him and ourselves. And that can really be crippling to our faith in some ways. Well, that's where the priesthood of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, really helps us is because while in fact he is greater than any other, he is himself God. He also came to share the nature like ours. He, he came and met us where we are. He has reached out to us. He has, as we saw in earlier chapters, become our brother. Literally, the scripture even calls him that. And so while he's worthy of every amount of praise, he is near to us also as one that we can know personally, as one that we can have confidence in. For everything that we experience, he took to himself, except for that sin. And so he knows what you go through. He knows what I go through. And he's able, therefore, to represent us well. And so let us then draw near, as the author says, which, by the way, is a continual verb. All right, let us continue to draw near with confidence, not just today, not just tomorrow, but always because of who this Christ is. Now, we now kind of move on to find an elaboration of this first point in chapter 5. I think we fall into the error sometimes of thinking that a lot of the biblical concepts that we read about, for example, the priesthood, that they kind of exist, I almost don't know how to put words to it, maybe separate from ourselves. You know, they're just kind of these concepts that God put out there that we don't really know why they're there. And so maybe they have some, you know, implications for us, but on the whole, they're just kind of their own thing, and we don't really know why they're there. But the Bible teaches that everything God does is for His glory and for our good. Everything. And here's why that matters. When it comes to the priesthood, God did not create it primarily for Himself. Okay, in fact, he needed no priesthood at all. He created it for his people, for those whom he had called to himself. He appointed it. 
And so when it comes to Christ, he was therefore appointed to serve for us. Now that is a very profound thought. Again, God does everything for his own glory. Yes. But in sending his son and appointing him to this great high priesthood, he was appointed to serve for us. We needed the priest. And so just consider the significance of the high priest being appointed by God. Broadly speaking, this priest was a means of grace, right? Something that God gave in order for grace to be communicated to his people. And just to make an illustration of this, consider these questions. Are men worthy of salvation? No. Are the angels who sinned worthy of salvation? No. Does God save angels? No. But does he save men? Yes. The point in that is that it shows us God did not have to give grace at all. In the case of the angels, he didn't. And he's right and just to do so. But in the case of men, he chose to do so. And the priesthood is a testament to that. The angels don't have a priesthood. Men do, because God appointed it. It's something that God provided in order to mediate atonement for sins. And because the direction is from God to us, God is the one who appoints the priest, not men. That's a key part of the emphasis here. As it says of Christ, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And it says in verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and so forth. The point is, Christ came in this way, not inserting himself into the office, but being appointed by God. And so for us, no one should hold Christ suspect. And especially for these original hearers, that's part of the issue. You know, think back to these previous chapters. There's been a lot of effort expended on the part of the author to get the audience to understand that Christ is greater. We should not doubt him or think we need to compare him to angels or prophets or any apostles that came before Christ is what all of these things pointed to. He is the ultimate end of all of God's plan of redemption. And so we should not hold him suspect in the office of priest as if he came and tried to take it by impure means. No, rather, the priesthood all along was designed to point to Christ. And now God has sent him once for all in fullness giving Christ as the perfect priest to his people. Now, we see in these six or so verses in the first part of chapter 5, um, a few points uh, about Christ's priesthood, details about it, um, the way that it perfectly fulfills the Levitical priesthood. And this is summarized well by John Calvin, and so I'm just going to convey to you the four points that he recognizes in this text because I think it's uh, very keen, his insights here. The first he points out is the humanity of the priests. So there in 5 and verse 1, 
every high priest chosen from among men. Right? So he's not some other creature. He's not an angel. But he's chosen from among men. Right? And therefore it was necessary for Christ to be a true man. We saw that a couple of sermons ago. Secondly, the priest acted not privately, but on behalf of all. So the priest was not one who was called to a certain office in which he just gave intercession for himself, but rather he was called to give intercession on behalf of all of God's people. In the second half of, or second part of verse 1, to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He came to serve on behalf of many. Thirdly, Calvin points out that the priests were to come furnished with sacrifices to appease God, which again we just read at the end of verse 1. And this reality is central to the task. Um, oftentimes, especially if you look at confessional language, the idea of atonement um, is, is most often described as, as satisfaction for sin. And that's good because sometimes when we strictly think of atonement in a narrow sense, we often think just of the, the judgment aspect, right? That we have fallen short of the glory of God, therefore our sins deserve judgment. Absolutely true, but that's not the only thing involved in atonement, right? That takes care of the negative, but there's also the need for the positive. That is a positive righteousness on our account, because God didn't call us to be morally neutral. He called us to be holy as he is holy, to be righteous as he is righteous. That's why we need the active obedience of Christ on our behalf. And so the phrase of satisfaction encompasses all of that. It satisfies his wrath towards sin, and it satisfies his demand for perfect righteousness. All of it we find in Christ. The priest satisfied God by the bringing of sacrifices and gifts before God. Christ was sinless, but he came and he bore the price of our sins, offering a perfect sacrifice to God. And the fourth thing that Calvin points out comes from verse 2, that the priests were not exempt from human infirmities. And in many ways, that goes with the first point, that uh, the high priest uh, shared in humanity. But in sharing in humanity, there's a key emphasis that they shared in the infirmities of the people. In verse 2, it says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, in the case of the ordinary priests, that meant, as the next verse says, that they had to offer atonement for their own sins first before they could offer atonement for the sins of the people. Christ was sinless, but he was subject to all of our infirmities. In serving as our high priest, as we've said, he knew sorrow, he knew temptation, he knew shame, he knew suffering. And so this experience enabled him to represent us rightly before God. And his sinlessness enables, sinlessness enables him to fulfill that office, which is where we move then to verses 4 through 6, which basically emphasize this idea of completeness or the fulfillment 
of God's plan. You see, it says, No one takes this honor to himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest. It was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now recall, again, how this letter started, contrasting the former revelation of God to the final revelation of God in Christ Jesus. The point, again, is that this idea of appointment reminds us that God works all things according to his purpose. And that's the point of these two quotations in verses 5 and 6, that Christ has come, things are final. The priesthood, while it served a purpose before, has now been fulfilled in him. And the first quote we have there is from Psalm 2-7, which has already been quoted in chapter 1. And the whole point there is that what was declared in Psalm 2-7 was not actually concerning parentage, but appointment. Right? So, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We also often think of begotten as language of being a parent, right? As a parent begets a child. But in this case, the reality was Christ has already been the son. He's always been the son. That's why we call him the eternal son of God. And so God in Psalm 2-7 says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, the whole reason then that the author uses that verse and puts it in here to support his point is to show that I have begotten you is a statement of appointment, which goes then into verse 6. You are a priest. That's the appointment after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is where we got to go back to what we said at the beginning about this priesthood of Melchizedek. There's a reason he doesn't say you are a priest forever after the order of Aaron or after the order of the Levites. It's because although Christ's priesthood fulfills every single point of the Levitical priesthood, it aligns with it in every way. At the end of the day, it is a better, different <laughs> priesthood. One that is not temporary, but one that is eternal. If the Aaronic priesthood established the reality of God's provision, but also the need of something greater than Christ's appointment to the order of Melchizedek's priesthood, established the fulfillment of those things. Now, just to make it practical, think of it this way. The Levites never stopped sacrificing. They were always there offering sacrifices. And when one died, another took his place. When he died, another took his place. Why? Well, that shows us, as we're going to see in coming chapters, it's because sins were never finally dealt with. None of that Levitical system could finally, ultimately, take care of the problem of sin. But as we emphasize in chapter 1, the reason Christ, after he ascended, sat down is because his work made purification for sins. It took care of it once and for all. And so he is a priest not after the order of the Levites. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal, unending priesthood that is perfect and that has accomplished 
everything that it intended to do. And so in short, one of the key emphasis here is don't look to the old ways. Look to Christ. And finally then, with verse 6 kind of being our transition verse there, making explicit the fact that Jesus' priesthood is distinct from that of Aaron, these final few verses simply elaborate um, in verses 9 and 10 how it's distinct, in what way. And that is, as we've said, it's perfect. It lacks nothing. It is complete. Now, before getting back to this completeness, the author first offers um, some further support of Jesus' solidarity with us by pointing out his prayers and supplications offered up with loud cries and with tears. Many people see in this a reference to Gethsemane, right? Jesus' hours of agony there in the garden, praying prior to his crucifixion. But uh, I would submit to you that, that the view is much broader. It's not just that narrow moment in time. But the point is, is that throughout his life, he truly suffered and had sorrow. But as every priest ought, he trusted God with that. He turned to the Lord with prayers, with supplications, with cries, and with tears. And so how much more does it draw us to Christ to know that his sufferings far exceeded our own? Again, we're not drawn to someone who is not relatable to us. And now we don't want to reduce the gospel down to God being relatable to us. But what we do want to see is that God did, out of compassion, out of mercy, out of grace and love, come to us and take to himself our sufferings. And what does it do for us to see what he did with those sufferings? He did not simply take them, mourn them, and wallow in self-pity with them. He turned to the Lord, Jesus did. He was obedient to the word to turn to the God who is his refuge and strength. In that way, he was the perfect priest, embodying what the priest was to do. But here's the most pressing point. He was heard because of his godly fear. Proverbs 15 and verse 29 says, God is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Now, that's a general maxim, as so many things in the book of Proverbs are, but it has specific application here. The idea is an unrighteous man is not heard by God, but a righteous man is. And so if Christ was heard by God, that means it's because he was righteous. Now, it does beg the question, though, didn't Christ die? Of course he did. But the text says Jesus was heard by him who was able to save him from death. So the question is, well, if he was heard, then why did he die? Well, we have to understand further. Yes, Christ died, but then what happened? God raised him from the dead. That's part of why the resurrection is so important, is because it was the vindication of who Jesus was, of everything that Jesus taught, and of everything that Jesus came to bring to his people. The resurrection vindicated Jesus' righteousness and his own work. It was God's stamp of approval, to, to put it kind of um, figuratively, if we may. It shows us that Jesus was right and true in everything that he did. And it assures us then of what is said in verses 8 through 10. 
that he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now this learning and the made perfect part for that matter, it doesn't emphasize a lack. There was nothing lacking in Jesus, uh, meaning that he was um, not perfect in the moral sense or in the righteous sense. But rather, what it's emphasizing is his humanity, right? He learned obedience through experience, despite the fact that he was always perfectly obedient. But he came as a child, and he grew up, and he learned as he grew, but he did this by trusting in God's word as a high priest was to do. He lived it, and through that experience, he was made perfect in the sense that he was made complete, right? He was fully formed and qualified to carry forth our salvation and to accomplish it. Again, something that could never be said of any other priest in the history of the world. And so there was nothing lacking in him to prevent him from fulfilling that office to which he had been called. And obviously, to state the obvious, when something is made perfect, that means there's nothing more you can add to it. Not a thing. And again, that's why Melchizedek is mentioned once more here at the end, the whole point of this section is to call our minds to what the Old Testament priesthood stood for and to declare that it is all fulfilled in Christ. The need for a representative, fulfilled. The need for satisfaction for sins and for righteousness, fulfilled. And the need for eternal intercession as a guarantee of those things, fulfilled. And so we circle back then to the underlying theme of this letter and the emphasis of the first point. And that is that we would maintain the confidence in our confession in Christ. We would see in him the perfect, complete high priest for our souls. I was recently uh, talking with a brother whose church is going through a pastoral search process. And with each candidate, you guys know this well, there's pros and there's cons. Um, hopefully, in your case, there's a few more pros than cons. But nevertheless, that's the reality with any man who would aspire to this office. And so part of the job of the church and of the elders in the pastoral search is to weigh those things. But strengths and weaknesses, the weaknesses particularly, they prevent us from having full confidence in any man, which is fine. We should have full confidence in no one but the Lord. But I bring that out to you to point out that in Christ, there is no lack. There is no completeness or there is no incompleteness. And so all is fulfilled. And so the logical conclusion then is that in him, we can have perfect confidence and assurance. No need for wavering. No need for turning away. No need for entertaining any other thought or desire or temptation that would seek to lead us away. We can be satisfied and content in Him because in Him all is fulfilled. He's worthy of our confidence and our trust. He's worthy of our perseverance. And He will bring through to that everyone who trusts in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You as always for this word. 
And we thank you that before your throne, we have a perfect mediator in Christ Jesus. Hear our prayers, O Lord. Build us up and strengthen us in our weakness. For you know, Lord, how easily prone we are to turn aside to other things. Shameful as it may be, Lord, we confess it to you and we ask, strengthen us to continue pressing on toward faithfulness in Christ. As we look forward to his return, as we often say to perfect our redemption, we know, Lord, you've called us to be ready. You've called us to be patient. Give us both of these things, Lord, as we trust and rest in Christ. And thank you again for building us up, for encouraging our hearts, for meeting with us today. We love you. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand and turn to number two.